And what I want you to particularly kind of follow along with me this morning is on this primary point, that it is the responsibility of the Christian towards God and to the local church that God has placed them in to exercise gifts that have been given to him. I want to say this again, that it is your responsibility and my responsibility before God to make sure that we are identifying and exercising the spiritual gifts that God has given us and that we are exercising those gifts within the body of Christ that Christ has placed us. So that if you're here as a member of Nosset Baptist Church, God has given to you specific gifts which are to be exercised in this church. If you're here visiting from other churches, you have particular gifts that God has given to you that are to be exercised within that local assembly. It is the very design of God by way of your salvation that gifts be given to you and that those gifts be used in the local church. Now, the reason why I'm broadening this out to include the whole of the fourth chapter is because I want you to purposely understand that a church in a difficult uh, situation is no reason for the gifts not to be exercised. That a church in a time of persecution or a church in a time of peace, no matter what it might be, is still to be exercising the gifts that God has placed within that body. That's why I'm I'm emphasizing the, the larger context. I think Peter is doing something very specific here. He's saying to the church of Jesus Christ, listen, expect suffering to come your way for the cause of Christ. But don't let suffering and persecution make you think that there is something other than the exercise of your gifts that should be taking place. And it's kind of interesting when we, when we break down this, uh, this, uh, this chapter, we can see it in three kind of broad movements. And number one, Peter uh, kind of reminds us that suffering is the lot of the Christian church. It's to be expected. We're not to be surprised by it. Number two, Peter will then give us specific information on how the church is to conduct itself among itself so that in a time of persecution there is still a specific uh, activity or there is still specific uh, things that the church ought to be engaged in one uh, among itself one another then thirdly we're going to see that the uh, the apostle peter also gives instruction how the individual christian is to act in society at large so suffering is, the, is, is again, the, the expected part of the Christian. There is, there is this instruction given on how the Christian is to conduct himself within the church. And then thirdly, there is instruction on how the Christian is to conduct himself in the world at large, all against the backdrop of suffering. Well, let me go on now to give you what we're going to use as an outline, which will be a very basic two-point outline. And it's the following. Now, again, the, the proposition, the doctrine is that God has given you gifts to be used in this church. That's our main point. The outline we're going to show is this. In the world, you may indeed experience suffering. But in the church, you must be exercising your gifts. In the world, you may indeed experience suffering. Now, many of us have not, again, experienced suffering in any great degree because of our testimony for Jesus Christ. In other places in the world, this is true. They are experiencing a difficulty. But you may indeed experience it. And whatever you experience in the world by way of suffering, that is, again, according to the will of God. But whatever happens in the church of Jesus Christ, it must be happening by way of the exercise of the believer's gifts. You are given gifts at salvation. You may not think it. 
You may not think that you have any gifts that you can bring to bear in the life of this church. Can I be very blunt with you? You're wrong. God has given each and every one of you. If he, each and every one of you are, who are here by faith in Jesus Christ have been given specific gifts that God has given to you as a stewardship to be exercised in the life of this body. Can I say it another way? This local congregation needs your gifts to be discovered, to be developed, and to be exercised within this body. There is a sense in which Nosset Baptist Church will not accomplish what God intends for it apart from your interaction and exercise of the gifts that God has given to you. That's how important the concept of gifts are. The gifts aren't like this kind of, oh, over and above. Oh, isn't it nice that we have these gifts? That's not what the gifts are. The gifts, can I put it this way, are the very nuts and bolts of what church life is all about. And apart from the exercise of spiritual gifts, the church can never function as God intends for it to function. And so again, we'll see these things, we'll develop these things. And so that's the, that's the like I said, the primary doctrine that we have. And then again, the two-point outline, very simple. In the world, you and I may indeed experience suffering for the cause of Christ, but in the church, we must be exercising gifts for the cause of Christ. Suffering in the world for the cause of Christ. In the church, the exercise of gifts for the cause of Christ. Let's take a look at this. Well, one of the things I think that we can see very clearly is that uh, Peter's emphasis here is on the fact that he is preparing us for the possibility of suffering. Look at again what he says in verse 1. For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. I want you to see two things here. Number one, notice how Peter starts out this verse with the therefore. And really what Peter is doing, Peter is pointing back to verse, uh, chapter, I'm sorry, chapter 3, verse 18, where he talks about the fact of Christ suffering for us. Look at verse 18 of uh, 1 Peter chapter 3. This is a classic passage of scripture, really. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Notice what he says here. For Christ also hath once suffered for our sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened in the spirit. And so what Peter is doing purposely, he is drawing upon the suffering of Christ for you and for me, and then saying, listen, you must arm yourself with the same mind to be ready to suffer for the cause of Christ. But first, Christ has suffered for us. This is a phenomenal passage of Scripture for a number of reasons. Number one, in this passage of Scripture, we have the whole classic category of Christ as a substitute for sinners. I set before you this morning, Jesus Christ as a substitute for sinners. And I ask you the question, have you seen Jesus Christ in this light? Have you seen Jesus Christ on the cross, not again as some travesty of justice, but have you seen Jesus Christ on the cross as dying for you? You see, this is the very thrust of Christ's work. He comes again to die for sinners. Christ has suffered for the, the, the just for the unjust. Christ the just, me the unjust. And you see, this is, the, this is the whole work of what the gospel is all about. Christ suffering for sinners. Amen. Let, me ask you, let me ask you a question. Do you see yourself as a sinner this morning? You see, if you're here seeing yourself as a righteous person and thinking to yourself, oh, I'm glad that Jesus died for those people who really need it. This is This is folly. You must see yourself again before God as one who is in dire need of the work of Christ on your behalf. And he did it. You see, he suffered for you. Christ suffered for us in our place. 
And so it's on this basis that Peter says again, uh, uh, this is, it's on this basis that Peter says in verse 1, For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourself likewise with the same mind. For he that suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So again, we see here Christ suffering uh, on our behalf. But the second thing I want you to see is that this is a common theme uh, of, uh, of, uh, uh, of, that we see in the scripture over and over again of believers suffering for the cause of Christ. You remember what the Apostle Paul said there in Acts chapter 14 when he's, when he's, when he's dealing with those who have come to faith in Christ. He, he, he exhorts them and he encourages them and he says that we must through much tribulation enter the kingdom of God. You see, this thing that you, that you engage, this life that you live, eternity is at stake here. And while the grace of God is freely given, and while salvation is given apart from anything that we can do, there is such a sense by way of the value of the soul and the opposition of the world, the flesh, and the devil against us, that there is a sense in which we must, again, through much tribulation, because there is much hardship along the way, but grace sustains the Christian. It's part of that manifold grace. It's part of that embroidered grace that we were talking about earlier. In John chapter 16, verse 33, the Lord Jesus Christ says to his disciples again, These things have I spoken to you, that, you might have, that in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. You see the Lord Jesus Christ reminding his people that yes, in the world you shall have tribulation. He even is more direct in John 15, when he says, if the world hates you, understand that it first hated me. And so in this day and age in which we live, there are people who are truly experiencing the hatred of others and the hostility of others for the simple reason that they have been identified with Christ. And they've not shied away from that public identification with Christ. And so Peter is saying to them, he's saying to his, the people that he was writing to in the first century, and he's saying to us, Arm yourself with the same mind. This expression reminds us something of, a, of what Paul writes in Philippians. And when he says, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. You see, here is the whole work of the renewal of the mind that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 12. Then we begin to see things not from a self-centered or a self-preserving perspective. We begin to see things, we begin to see things from the perspective of God's glory in Jesus Christ. You're engaged in a work that will last for eternity. You're engaged in a work that has eternal significance. You, as a follower of Jesus Christ, will never, you should never come to the end of your days and say, what was it all about? Can I ask, can I answer that question for you before you get to that point? What was it all about? It was all about living for the glory of God. And while suffering may come our way, we understand that there is a better hope and a future hope for the believer. Oh, may this be yours and may this be mine. I want to say this to you in, in the context of the gifts now. Let you, may you find yourself in such a setting by way of the local church where your gifts are discovered, developed, and exercised. There will be a vibrancy and an excitement and a looking forward to all those things that God is doing in you and through you. And then from the perspective of eternity, being able to look back and say, Father, what great things you have done through this weak instrument. This is what the gifts are for. And so again, Peter reminding us of the reality of suffering all through this fourth chapter. 
Again, he speaks in he speaks uh, again in, uh, in 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 verse twelve. Beloved, thinking not strange of the fiery trial. Verse fourteen, he says this: If he be reproached for the name of Christ, and again, this is interesting because Peter is recognizing here now that sometimes our suffering isn't the, the in the most extreme form. Sometimes our suffering is in the more subtle form of just maybe people slandering us, or maybe just people not preferring our company, or maybe just people just talking uh, uh, bad about us behind our back. You see. There is this reproach that comes with uh, that comes to the followers of, uh, of Jesus Christ. Peter says again in verse sixteen: If any man suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed. What does he say? Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. Peter's echoing the, the words of the Lord Jesus Christ: Blessed are you, and men shall revile you and persecute you and say all, all manner of evil against you for my name's sake. And so again, and then Peter closing up again the, the verse in ver, uh, the chapter in verse 19. Wherefore, let him, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. Listen to what Peter says here. Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God. Yes, sometimes it is the will of God that we undergo these hardships and these persecutions and these difficulties. It's within the very design of God at times. The other thing I want you to say is this. Notice he says, according to the will of God. This becomes important because earlier he said, let no man suffer as an evildoer, as a busybody. In other words, and if I'm suffering as an evildoer, as a busybody, I'm suffering according to my own will, not God's will. But there is those times, there are those times when we suffer according to the will of God. But notice again what else he says here. Commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing. Oh, can you say this? There's a sense in which this 19th verse kind of controls everything within this fourth chapter. By way of our preparation for suffering, we commit ourselves unto a faithful creator. By way of the exercise of our gifts, and we might think, well, I don't have this gift, and I, and I can't do this, and I can't do that. Commit your souls unto God. Amen. Let the gifts be exercised as CCs fit through you. But the other thing I want you to see is this. Notice what Peter says here. He says, commit the, commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing. Peter says, don't let, your, don't let suffering for Christ knock you off of service for Christ. You keep doing what Christ has called you to do. You be the man or woman uh, that God is calling you to be in your circumstances, in your situation. Those circumstances and those situations may be very broad. They may be, very, they may be somewhat narrow. It may be, you may be having to live for God in the confines of your family. Stay faithful to Christ, I'm saying to you. You may have to be faithful to Christ in the larger context of your work life. Stay faithful to Christ. You may, you may have to be faithful to Christ in some public setting. Stay faithful to Christ. Let not the, let not the slander, let not the, uh, the, the revilings, or, or let not the persecution knock you, knock us off of our following Christ. And so again, what I, I'm laying all this out because I want you to see that in times of persecution, what Peter calls us to isn't to some kind of special or different or, or, or anything out of the normal, so to speak, uh, conduct. He brings us back now to our life within the church. In the world, we may indeed experience suffering, but in the church, we must be exercising the spiritual gifts that God has given to us. Why do I say that? Well, notice what Paul. I'm sorry. Notice what Peter does as he transitions from verses one through six, suffering in the world, now to verses seven through eleven, life within the church. And notice what he says as we go on here, in verses, uh, as I said before, in verses uh, seven uh, through eleven. Notice what he what he says here. He says, "The end of all things is at hand." 
Be ye therefore sober and watch on the prayer. Going on. Above all these above all these things above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as the ability which God gives, that God in all things might be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I want you to see the four following things as Peter moves from life in the world to life in the church. In the world, you may, you may be experiencing persecution and suffering. In the church, you must be exercising spiritual graces and spiritual gifts. Why do I say this? Number one in verse seven, notice what he says. We are to be engaged, or I would put it this way. Number one, we are to be engaged in spiritual duties. And the spiritual duties that we see in verse seven are essentially this. We are to be sober-minded in the day and age in which we live, and we are to be committed to prayer. <clears throat> These are, the two, these, are, these are two of the great disciplines or two of the great duties of the Christian life. What is this thing to be sober-minded? Well, in one sense, we have to say that since Peter is mentioning this in the context of reveling and drunkenness and excess of living, there is a sense in which he's calling us to a certain sobriety by way of our, by way of our personal uh, conduct. He's, he's, he's telling us in one sense not to be given over to drunkenness. But there's another sense in which the word sobriety, when, whenever it's used in the scripture, when the scriptures call us to be sober-minded, it means to be clear thinking. It means that, to have a right perspective on things. And the right perspective that Peter is calling us to is the perspective that he mentioned in verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. You see, there is a sense in which there is nothing more to be expected before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And can I say this? My, my elderly brothers and sisters, does seem like the end of all things is at hand, doesn't it, sometimes? We're getting, we're moving on in years, aren't we? And so we understand, as I kind of put it in a picturesque way, there's more in the rear view mirror than there is in front of us. And so the end of all things, again, often in a very real way, is at hand. But Peter means it, again, from the standpoint of the work of Christ in an overall sense. So this sober-mindedness means to live in light of the age in which we find ourselves. Oh, let's give ourselves over to the sober-minded thinking. But he calls us to prayer as well, doesn't he? Again, because the day and age in which we live, let us be sober-minded and let us engage in prayer, verse 7. And so as I said before, number one, we are to be engaged in spiritual duties. Number two, we are to be manifesting the fruit of the Spirit. Did you notice that in verses 8 and 9? He speaks about love and hospitality. We're going to come back to that. Number three, he talks about exercising the spiritual gifts. And we see this in speaking and serving. And these are the two broad categories of spiritual gifts that we find in the New Testament. The two broad categories of all spiritual gifts can be classified under either speaking gifts, whereby uh, the gifts are given in order to proclaim the message, in order to give comfort, in order to give exhortation, or they are serving gifts in order to serve the church of Christ to the mutual benefit of the body of Christ. And then number four, we're to do all things for the glory of God. Uh, and, and we see this in verses 11 and 19. So again, the four duties that are to be exercised in the church are, number one, as I said before, spiritual duties of prayer and sober-mindedness, uh, manifesting the fruit of the Spirit in love and hospitality, verses 8 and 9, exercising the spiritual gifts, speaking and serving in verses 10 and 11, and doing everything to the glory of God, verse 11. Now I want to begin to develop each of these points. And the first thing that I want you to see and understand is this. 
is that the first duty that we are called to as it comes to our conduct within the church of Christ in a day and age in which we may or may not be experiencing persecution, the first thing we are called to is this idea of sober-mindedness and prayer. We've already talked about sober-mindedness. Now I want to emphasize prayer. Prayer, that great, that great grace and that great duty that Christ has given to the church. Prayer, that great necessity that is pressed upon us because of all of our difficulties. Prayer, that great need of the church at all times, at all places, in every circumstance. Prayer is appropriate to the moment, is it not? And you see, again, what I, what I want you to see here is this, is that, and I, I would say the following, our personal prayer life and our public stated prayer services must mark who we are whether in the privacy of our homes or in the public expression of our faith. What am I moving at here? As we, as we come into Peter's instruction for what's to happen within the life of the church in the times in which he's writing about, I want you to see that the first thing he's emphasizing is prayer. Prayer in our personal lives, but also prayer in our public life. And I think that Peter is emphasizing something here by way of corporate prayer. Private prayer, yes, but corporate prayer as well. I hope to press upon you. And I can't do this apart from the grace of God. I can't do this apart from the, from the, from, from the ability of the Spirit. I can't do this unless the Spirit of God opens this, up to you, opens this up to you. Do you understand how vital the prayer meeting is to the life of any congregation in this congregation? I'm not trying to be. I'm not trying to, to berate anybody. I'm not trying to be difficult on anybody. But I would be failing here if I didn't mention the importance and the necessity of the stated times of public prayer. This congregation needs your prayer in public and in private, just like this congregation needs the exercise of your gifts, just like the just like this congregation needs the the, 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 uh, the development the uh, the development of the spiritual fruit that is within you. Love and hospitality. This congregation needs it. Every one of the things that we see here that Peter is giving, this congregation needs. And you're a part of that. You see, this is vital for us. And so as I said before, again, whether in our personal prayer life or our public stated times of prayer services, these must mark who we are, both in the privacy of our homes and in the public expression of our faith. Our prayer meetings are essential to the well-being of our church. So that's the first thing that we see, these spiritual duties to be engaged in. The second thing that we see here is the, spirit, is the manifesting of spiritual fruit. And I'm classifying verses, uh, uh, verses 8 and 9 under this, because in verses 8 and 9, notice what we see here. Peter says the following, uh, and, and, and Peter says the following here in, in verses 8 and 9, Above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. I think we can see this in a general category as the fruit of the Spirit. You know, again, we see uh, the fruit of the Spirit there in Galatians chapter 5. And while it's not a direct parallel by way of uh, hospitality, we don't see that so much as a direct reference in Galatians chapter 5. Certainly love is. And we would even have to say if we understand hospitality in all of its aspects, there, are, there's, there, there would be a connection between hospitality and the, and, and the manifesting of the fruit of the Spirit. So what I want you to see is this is that the manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit is vital to any congregation that Jesus Christ has established. That not only is prayer essential, so is the manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit. Now the manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit is a wonderful thing, is it not? Oh, to see the fruit of the Spirit developing one another. To see the fruit of the Spirit again popping up. To see the fruit of the Spirit coming through its full display. It's a wonderful thing. 
those of us who are husbands, can I say it this way, gentlemen? Isn't it a wonderful thing when we see the spiritual fruit developing in our wives? Husbands and, and, and wives, isn't it a wonderful thing to see fruit developing in children? Again, children, isn't it a wonderful thing to look at parents and see real, genuine spiritual fruit there? Church, congregation, wouldn't it be a wonderful thing to look across these pews and see spiritual fruit? And Peter emphasizes this. And notice what he says here. He gives this great emphasis to love. And above all things, above all things, he says, look, if I only have one thing to say, what am I going to say? Love one another. You say, what? You know, I love, I, I don't have anything against anybody in the church. But can I say something? That's not love. Love is you not having nothing against someone. Love is you having everything for someone. You understand the difference? You see, there's this, this, this love that is pressed upon the people of God. It's very interesting because Peter seems to really be, be emphasizing uh, not only suffering in this passage of Scripture, but also, also the idea of love. Notice what we see in, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Peter says this, Seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned, that word unfeigned is unhypocritical, true, genuine love for the brethren. See that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. Look, you love one another, now love one another fervently. And there's a whole sense in which it's kind of interesting because you have two of the words for love in the Greek New Testament used here. On the one hand, he talks about this love of the brethren, phileo. Now he talks the other sense of this love of the this love fervently, agape. So again, the love is to be this developed love. It's to be a love of fervency. And oh, brothers and sisters, I, I call you to this love. I, I challenge you with this love. Let us have this kind of love one for another. You see how dependent we are on the Spirit of God to work this fruit within us. Paul brings out the same thing. He says this in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. Very important passage of Scripture. And we can go to many parallels here, parallel passages here. But we'll just go to Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. Paul, uh, Paul says this, Put on therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, listen to what he says, bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, forgiving one another. If any man has a quarrel against any... Even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And now listen to what Paul says, just like Peter in verse 14. And above all these things, put on charity. It's the very thing that Peter said. Above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to, to which also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. This idea of love, this idea of peace, uh, of peace within, within the congregation, this is something that is emphasized over and over again. This congregation needs your unfeigned love. This congregation needs your fervent love one for another. This is what... Christ is calling his church to. And so this emphasis on love. Now the other thing that's interesting here in this passage in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, you have to understand that Peter is giving this command to love not in a, a pristine uh, kind of circumstance. Peter is actually giving this command to love in the face of much difficulty. What are, and is, is, is he talking about the difficulty that's outside the church? No. He's talking about the difficulty that sometimes exists within the church. It's, it, it hurts us, doesn't it? And if, and if we're honest, sometimes we've been the cause of it. 
<laughs> it hurts. Think of these little petty grudges we hold sometimes. And I'll, I'll be, I'll save you here. These little petty grudges that I hold on to sometimes. So Peter's not talking about a pristine situation. Listen to what he says here. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. And above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves. Listen, for charity covers the multitude of sins. Now what Peter isn't talking about, he's not saying, look, you better love so that your love is going to cover your own sins. That's not what Peter's talking about. Peter is saying that our love is to be expressed in such a way that even when others sin against us, we love anyway. And by that love, cover a multitude of sins. It's not so much what our love does for us before God. It's what our love does among each other to the glory of God. So that my fault is overlooked by your love. And that love covers a multitude of sins. And I don't know what was wrong with the pastor the other day. But he went up one side of me and down the other. Well, the love says, hey, you know, maybe it's just a bad day. <laughs> maybe we all have them. But I want you to see that this is the, this is the specifics of what, of what Peter is saying. There are two ways to, to illustrate Peter's point here. One is a very tender way. And the other strikes at the very heart of the gospel, or, or, or the other brings us to the very heart of the gospel. <clears throat> This idea of love covering a, a, a fault or love covering an offense or love covering an, a, a sin, we see it pictured for us in, in a way in the life of, of Joseph in his conduct with Mary. Now, Mary obviously did not sin against Joseph. Um, Joseph was told by the angel that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. But from Joseph's human perspective, before the angel told him that, again, this man was crushed. You may have heard me said before, I think that when Joseph goes to sleep there, I don't think he goes to sleep because it's time to sleep. I think he's in that state of depression where all he can do is sleep. So weighed down by the circumstances and the situation that he finds himself in. And Joseph, being the man that he was, he chose not to expose that sin, but to cover that sin. My heart's broken. And I'll get back at her for that. No, my heart's broken. And I'll, and I'll put her away privately so that nobody... You see, love covers the sin. So it's a tender way of seeing that. But there's another way. It gets us to the very heart of the gospel. Isn't that what God has done with our sins? Hasn't he covered our sins? Aren't you glad that when you came to Christ, faith in Christ... Now again, don't get me wrong, sometimes there's a need to, to go to individuals that we, offend, that we have offended. But for the most part, in the generality of it, when we come to faith in Christ, God doesn't say, now you go declare your sins to everybody everywhere. Oh, they're covered in the blood. The blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believes in him, again, shall not perish, but have everlasting life. God gave. You see, this is the thing. Again, uh, Paul speaking in, uh, in Romans chapter 4, uh, verses 6 and 7, and, and speaking from the Old Testament, from the Psalms, and uh, the, quote, quoting David, where David says, blessed are, those who, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. You see, love covers a multitude of sins. 
And in the life of a congregation, your love for me will cover my faults. My love for you will cover your faults. Your love for me will not cause you to gossip uh, to, to somebody else in the church. My love for you will do the same thing. You see, love covers a multitude of sins. This very grace, the manifestation then of, these, of the fruit of the Spirit. And so again, we see uh, this, uh, this giving ourselves over to these spiritual duties of prayer, uh, finding the, 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 the manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit among us. But now we come again to what's really the central point, and that is the exercise of spiritual gifts. And I was very much afraid that it would take me this long to get to, this, to the main point of the sermon. So anyway, here we are. So we'll see what we can do here. Uh, and, the, and, and the third thing I want you to see that we are called to here in this, in this section of uh, Peter's writing is that we are called to the exercise of our spiritual gifts. Well, that leads us to a point now where we have to do a little bit of defining. And what is a spiritual gift and how do we understand it? Well, let me suggest to you the following uh, definition. I would say this concerning spiritual gifts, that a spiritual gift is a supernatural endowment given by the sovereign will and discretion of the Holy Spirit to each individual in the church of Christ in order to equip the church for ministry and for the benefit of the, of the body of Christ in its service to each other and for the exaltation of Christ and the glory of God. Something of a detailed definition. Let me give it to you again a little more quickly. What is a spiritual gift? A spiritual gift is a supernatural endowment given by the sovereign will and discretion of the Holy Spirit to each individual in the church of Christ in order to equip the church for ministry and the benefit of the church in its service to each other and for the exaltation of Christ and the glory of God. Spiritual gifts do those multiple things. As I said before, not, at, once we understand that they are given by the discretion of the Spirit of God, they equip the church for ministry. They enable the church to edify the body. So the church are, are for the mutual edification. They also enable us to exalt Christ and they are given to the glory of God. Now each of these things we're going to see here as we get on in, in the weeks to come. Now why should we emphasize spiritual gifts? And this is very important. Why should we emphasize spiritual gifts? Well, let me say this. The reason why we have to emphasize spiritual gifts is because there's really no option. The church really cannot function as a church apart from spiritual gifts. They are absolutely vital to the, to, to the being and to the well-being of the church. Gifts are essential. We can say this uh, along with, uh, there was a, a gentleman, uh, just a, a, a world-class theologian. Many of you might know his name, John Owen. He probably is without peer uh, within Reformed uh, theology. John Owen says this, there can be no authentic church life without the exercise of the gifts. Now, you have to understand, this isn't like just some wild-eyed, uh, uh, flamboyant preacher saying this. This is a man that, again, as I said before, he's probably without peer within Reformed theological circles. And his, his comment on the gifts is that, once again, there can be no real church life apart from their being exercised he says this he says the following he says um, without the gifts the church cannot subsist in the world nor can believers be useful to one another or to the rest of mankind under the glory of God as they ought to be apart from the exercise of the gifts I would say the following 
that we have to understand in one sense, not to be misunderstood here. I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to, to speak in a way to be misunderstood, but not to be misunderstood here. You have to understand, we have to understand that the Christian church is distinctly charismatic. What do I mean by that? Are we, quote-unquote, a charismatic church in the sense that it's used today in, uh, in, 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 uh, in, um, in religious uh, speech? No, we're not. We're not a charismatic church in that sense. But in the true sense of the word, every Christian church is distinctly charismatic. The word charismatic means, has the idea of the giving of gifts. From the beginning of your salvation, a gift, to the exercise of your usefulness in the church, a gift. And so we cannot move away from this idea that somehow, some way, that there isn't to be an expression of the grace gifts given by the Spirit of God. Now, I hope, that I, I hope I'm not confusing you on that. And as I said here before, and as I, and as I have written here, the Christian church is distinctly charismatic. From the grace gift of salvation to the grace of spiritual abilities, the church can only function as the body of Christ through the gifts that Christ has purchased for the church and which gifts the Holy Spirit sovereignly distributes. You see, this is what has happened. Christ has purchased gifts. And it's the Spirit of God who sovereignly uh, uh, distributes those gifts within the church. And this is all done, again, for the mutual edification of the body and for the glory of God himself. Again, let me say this, and, and, and I, I, I apologize for taking so long to get here. Owen goes on to say this, and again, I'm reading this because it's so significant that this man is saying it. He says, he says without the gifts, the church is a mere shadow of itself. <clears throat> now notice, its worship becomes sterile, for gospel ordinances are found to be fruitless and unsatisfactory without the attaining and exercising of gospel gifts. The church falls into the ditch of formalism and the mire of superstition. And you know what that looks like in our experience? Man, I'm glad church is over today. Boy, did that take long to get over. That's what happens. It does. We come here as a formality. There's to be a vibrancy of spiritual life here, brothers and sisters. And that vibrancy takes place through the gifts that God has given to each and every one of you. Your gifts are vital in this church. They're not like, okay, you know, where do I put this? No, they're, they're part and parcel of what Christ intends to do in and through this church. Owen goes on to say this, and he speaks about what happens to a church when the church retains its forms but loses the power that those forms were designed to express. He says this. He says, The names of spiritual things are still retained, but applied to outward forms and ceremonies, which thereby are substituted insensibly into their room, to the ruin of the gospel in the minds of men, as the neglect of internal saving grace, wherein the power of godliness truly consists, has been the bane of Christian profession as to obedience so that the neglect of these gifts have been the ruin of the same profession as to the worship and order. <clears throat> what he is saying is this. <clears throat> Apart from the lively and enlivening and, and energizing work of the Spirit, we're no more than a religious club gathered together. But if the Spirit of God is operating in the fullness of His gifts here in this assembly, you see the life that Christ intends will be manifested here. Last quote from Owen, he says this, 
A ministry devoid of spiritual gifts is sufficient evidence of a church under a degenerating apostasy. Brothers and sisters, this church needs the gifts that Christ has given to you. And I'm way, way beyond what I want, but I have to say one last thing. Look again at verse 10 here. I want you to see something here. As every man, this is what we see about the gifts, every person is gifted in the church. Not as some, not as the few, but as every man has been gifted. And receive the gift, even so minister the same one to another. That's the purpose, you see. The purpose of the gift isn't for your own benefit. It's for, it's for the edification of the body of Christ. He says, even so minister the same one to another. Now listen to this. As stewards of the manifold grace of God. What's a steward? A steward is that, which, is that person who has responsibility for something that has been given to him. My friends, my brothers and sisters, I say this to you as your pastor. You must understand that one day you and I will stand before God and we will give an account by way of our stewardship of the gifts that Christ has given to us. My friends, if you do not even know what your gift is, how can you give an account to God for that gift? We shall all one day stand before the judgment seat of Christ. It is the, it is the, it is the responsibility of this church. It is the focus. It is the priority of this church to help you discover, develop, and exercise your gifts. It may create like kind of difficulties because gifts should be being expressed all over the place. And we may have to think, okay, how are we going to work this all out? But for you and me to sit around and think, God's not giving me any gifts. Look, every man has been given a gift. And he's been given a gift as a stewardship, which means you will give an account to the Lord Jesus Christ on that day when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ. My friends, listen. If it's not enough to appeal to you to discover, develop, and exercise your gift on the basis of the need of this congregation for your gifts, may I appeal to you on the fact that one day you will stand before Christ and give an account of your stewardship. And if you want to see what that looks like, there's a whole parable on that. We'll get a sense of what it's like to have to give an account for stewardship. You see, things are required of you, my brothers and sisters. And at the very least, what's required of you is to understand the gifts that God has given to you. And exercise those gifts in this church for the benefit of your brother and sister. But also, did you see there in verse 11? That God in all things might be glorified through Jesus Christ. Amen. To whom be glory and honor forever. My friends, which one of you here say that when you come to this church, you're coming here with a specific purpose not to glorify God? You never say that. You're coming here with a purpose to glorify God. We may fail to do that perfectly, but that's our desire I'm saying to you, we cannot glorify God apart from the exercise of the spiritual gifts that God has given to this church. I look out in this congregation, what do I see? Can I say it this way? I see untapped gifts. And may in this coming year, may through this short series of sermons, may through the studies that we'll be doing in, in a month or so to come, may these be all the, 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 the opening up of our understanding of not only what our gifts are, to the manifest, but also to the manifesting of them in the life of this congregation. My brothers and sisters, I speak, this, I speak this to you as your pastor. I speak this to you as one who one day must stand before Christ and, and give an account for, for, for your spiritual lives. Engage in the joy of that service for Christ. 
wherein you will find yourself doing things when you look back and you'll say, don't ask me how I did that. I have no idea. It must have been the grace of God. That's the life that we're called to, my brothers and sisters. In the world we may experience suffering, in the church we must be exercising our gifts. Let us pray.